Hey, it's Chris Nichols. Thank you guys for listening to the Petapixel podcast. Catch our new episodes every week on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Petapixel podcast. We've got some exciting topics to cover today. We're going to look at SanDisk getting sued by their users. We've got some ink cartridge madness and Kazuto-san from Sigma. Is he calling us out over focus breathing? But first I should introduce us and I'm going to change up how we do this a little bit. <laughs> if you were a character in the movie Speed, which would you be? Oh, I'd be Keanu Reeves for sure. I think I, you're 100% Dennis Hopper. Uh, I see. <laughs> I really see Jaren as a, as a Keanu figure, you know, like secure at the wheel. And I, I think I'm kind of the Sandy Bullock who's just like, <laughs> I'm here for the ride. You know, I hope we can well, get to this. What it sounds like, like is I'm the guy who gets dragged under the bus wheels at the like third of the movie in. Well, I you're all awesome. I was seven years old when this movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> But He's I think like, we're like, the, okay, we got this thing figured out. And then Chris will like pull something, throw something on his desk that totally changes it all up. And it's like, oh no, what are we going to do now? So yeah, I'm going <laughs> to go with that. Anyways, I'm Jordan I, Drake. <laughs> I'm Chris uh, Nichols and I'm honored to be uh, based off Dennis Hopper. He's a great photographer, or was. Uh, I'm I'm Jaron Schneider. Yeah, we should do a better job of introducing ourselves every episode because it, I can't assume that everyone has seen previous episodes and knows who any of us are. So thank you for <laughs> well, reminding us. Well, now they not us. only know our names, but also our character traits. So I think I yeah. did a great job. Let's start this they show. They think I look like Dennis Hopper. It's great. Awesome job. <laughs> Thanks again to our podcast sponsor, OM System. Don't miss out on incredible late summer savings brought to you by the Petapixel podcast sponsor, OM System. Capture your end of summer adventures with style by taking advantage of this exclusive offer. Save a remarkable $699.99 when you bu bundle the OM5 body with the Amsweco Digital ED 12mm f2.0 lens. Jordan, I believe that you have some history with this lens that you wanted to talk about a little bit. <laughs> I did. I, I'd forgotten all about this lens. And then they mentioned it in the ad. And it took me back to when we got our very first cinema camera back in the camera store TV days. Uh, that was kind of the one lens that had a manual focus clutch on it, which I absolutely mm -hmm. needed because back then I don't think it even had autofocus on the Panasonic body. So it was months where I was shooting our show on a 24 millimeter full frame equivalent was like my primary lens. So I went and dug through the archives and I actually found images of me at the, <laughs> the pinnacle of my glory using this lens. If it's you're only listening there. to this, if you're only listening to this podcast, Please do yourself a favor, and when you get home or wherever you can go to actually look at the YouTube version of this, please fire up just this section because you have to see these pictures of Jordan. The look Even the ones of Chris, like Chris being in it is actually, he, he looks unusual to me as well. I don't <laughs> think I've, I've, I've seen Chris look quite like this, but Jordan, you, uh, 
you take the cake with this haircut. Well, and that uh, the hair is long and awful. And this was at the period where I was almost never on the show. Like I, it was very rare, but it was primarily Chris on it. So people haven't seen uh, how horrendous I was at that particular <laughs> phase of my life, but I was in a band. I wanted long hair. So it was floppy when I was drumming and uh, mistakes were made. You know, that's, that's the beauty of aging. Jaron is you can learn from your mistakes. <laughs> were you posing in this one next to the, uh, the custom, electric yeah. limited van were you like did chris Looks say i'm like gonna take a your picture mark. and you I, and you posed i believe it was that just, was yeah a sample image or maybe i was just posing a lot back at that point because i thought i, I think it was beautiful a sample radiant. image for sure yeah it was just outside the camera store like just just in the back back i gotta there. pull up the metadata on this and see what we were reviewing. but i mean there's some you go to tcs tv videos like the early stuff there's some jordan behind the counter with that exact same haircut absolutely you know, you're like, like, is a this a skate shop or is this a camera dork. store? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, oh well. You, so you this this lens has some history. You it does. It's a wonderful lens. I loved it. It's so compact, but still had that little focus clutch, and it looks really stupid on a cinema camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, it is a good lens. It's originally it priced at one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight ninety nine, but right now you can own it in combination. With that camera, the OM5, for $1,299. That's what? a crazy deal. Yeah. Hurry, though. This offer is only valid until September 3rd, 2023. That's really hurry. Like, hurry. That's like in a week. Yeah. Week or two. <laughs> September 3rd, 2023. Upgrade your gear today and seize the savings. Visit explore.omsystem.com slash petapixel to learn more. And that link is in the description below. Okay. Moving on past Jordan's questionable Crazy hair choices. Hair. It's, it's fine. We all had them. I had questionable <laughs> hair in, in, in my early 20s. And it looked not unsimilar to that, but more Asian. And so, like, it was, it was, a, lot, it was a lot of hair. So, I don't know. Chris has had one hairstyle the entire time I've known him. This is the look of Chris. I mean, it's been slightly different lengths through the years, but the general swoopiness and firmness of it has been it's unchanged the, the entire way. time I've known him. Yes. <laughs> the color has changed. The color has changed. Uh, I've put on some weight. You know, you still have that hat? Beards. That yeah, I still have that. That was our that was our camera store hats. Uh, you know, we're starting a photo republic kind of line with sort of a old school commie flavor. And uh, yeah, it was a good hat. That was a cold day. That was Battle at F Stop Ridge number two, the sequel, and it was like minus like twenty eight Celsius, and we had a hundred people out in the cold. It was uh, it was wild. It was we so unfair. We were just Turner like Valley. rolling rolling cars oh. over so people could warm up between takes, but just organizing like you know this is why assistant directors are the best people in the world because they will organize the mass of people as opposed to me <laughs> trying to shoot and be like no you have to stand over there and run over there anyways that whole thing was a mess and the video didn't turn out great anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay moving on let's talk about um this is actually a kind of two weeks old but it sort of has just been like it ex exponentially grew over the last week uh lee morris from f stoppers uh absolutely just raked canon over the coals with their printer ink cartridges he published a video where he cracked open a uh, Canon, looking at it, PG275XL fine cartridge, black, and um, found that inside of it was basically no liquid ink, a sponge that was pretty dry that he couldn't actually squeeze any ink out of. And it sort of 
brought another the light back onto printers and printer ink again. And I think Canon probably feels this was unfairly targeting them because any company that makes cartridges like this is likely doing something similar. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily excuse yeah. how ripped off <laughs> he felt. Thoughts? It's tough. Those are so expensive. I mean, I think I think all the manufacturers have been guilty of this for you know at some time or another. I remember when they started putting computer chips in the in the cartridges so that you had to use authentic gear, and it was always a big workaround, and and stuff would run out so quickly. Yeah, it's uh, it's no wonder that all those kiosks for you know refill your inkjet you know kind of filled in. We even had I remember at the shop we even had for a period of time like do it yourself inkjet refill kits like a syringe and you're supposed to like inject ink back into the cartridge and then tape it up it was it was really hokey but i mean obviously it's because people were feeling like they were getting shafted on a regular basis yeah the crazy thing for me is this is their xl which is the cartridges are all the same size for canon but this is the one with the most ink in it and Supposedly. yeah like jaron said there's <laughs> the, the sponge is not even like soaked through you can see the white on most of it from the top of the thing it's it's nuts how little ink is actually in there but yeah i mean like you said jaron everyone has been doing this but i feel like it's gotten worse and worse and worse like i am changing my print heads yeah. far more frequently than I did, you know, with printers going back even like 10 years, like the old Epson 3800s and things like that would actually last a little while. Yeah, I think so in this video, he recommends Epson EcoTank because you can actually like literally see how much ink it's using and you fill it back up. You don't have to buy cartridges like this that are a black, a literal black box that you can't see into. Um, I do want to point out that Canon also sells a very similar system. Uh, to the eco tank where you can do the same thing but like canon in particular regularly publishes on their website press releases of how yeah. proud they are that they have taken down yet another ink scamming not scam basically someone who's infringed on their patent yeah. on amazon they're like we've we've taken down 84 more how dare they do that and it's just like <laughs> okay if you're if you're that proud of how much you defend your patent on these you might actually want to make your product gooder good yeah <laughs> so it's tough though because like if you want to use aftermarket cartridges and and refill cartridges with like other brands of ink or you know you know generic ink you can't ensure that your color is going to come out the same right i mean similar but you have to be willing to reprofile you know actually use your own printer profile do all the clicks on the squares scan in your own profile to make your own icc file otherwise it's not necessarily going to match what uh, what you might be using for your papers so yeah it's a uh, it's a slippery slope it's a slippery slope. but if if you're the manager of the inkjet division you're like find a way to make us 20 percent more profit what do you do i guess people are just like well let's put less ink in there i don't know my yeah. main takeaway from this video is that if you break something open, then millions of people will watch it. And I know this is your favorite <laughs> activity on earth, Chris. So we're going to have you just open things up from now on. Yeah. And uh, well, I, think I remember, that's the I remember a the similar scandal. Go. I remember a similar scandal. I don't remember which brand it was, but it was the opposite, right? The cartridges were saying it's empty. You have to buy, buy a new one. And then people crack those cartridges open and there's still like a whole well full of ink inside. And that was like a whole other thing, right? People are like, well, why are they making me buy more ink when there's clearly still tons in here? So I don't know. Printers, man. Printers. Shady biz. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to probably need to buy a new printer soon because I'm sort of tired of mine and it only connects to one computer in my house. I can't get it to like work with. This is the other thing that yeah. is so frustrating how? about printers. Like how in, I, I just got really fired up. How in like the last <laughs> 20 years have we not figured out how to make printing not a pain in the butt? Like yeah. literally every other peripheral in my like house, every piece of technology I own works exactly as it's supposed to, except my printer and i really want to cuss right now but i'm holding it in because <laughs> i don't want to bleep myself later i'm giving myself less work by doing cuss. it <laughs> what the cuss jared that's uh, why i still use a, a typewriter uh the corsair uh smith corona because i just type out all my documents on the typewriter no you don't then, uh, i know i've never received i would love to get like a typed out letter from chris like dear jordan you're <laughs> annoying me this week that would be incredible <laughs> and i'll mail it you'll get it two weeks later <laughs> yeah. than it's but intended jaron's totally like we have one like document printer in our house and it only works with the iMac that's behind me. So we have three laptops in the house and my wife and I have to like go into the basement if we want to print out that's a document. That's what I have and, to do. And it's plugged <laughs> in through USB. I'm not even talking like wirelessly. Like we plug the USB into a modern computer and it still won't see this printer. And it is not it's it's wild. Like a two-year-old HP Envy. <laughs> no one should envy this thing. 7155 and uh, it's annoying. So HP yeah. We have a- like Go ahead, Chris. We have an $80 Best Buy special printer upstairs, and then Jordan's always like, hey, can Aaron print out some documents for me? And I'm like, what? How many printers do you have in your house? Like, uh, they don't work. I don't know. It's, it, and she just prints so, them out. It's like easier for him to go to another house to get documents <laughs> that, than it is to use the three printers he has. If if there was one company that I think is probably worse than Canon at printing and like managing how they charge customers for printing, it's HP. HP is easily the most frustrating i think there was a case where like they were forcing you to buy ink if you wanted to scan if your ink cartridges (laughs) were low it wouldn't let you digitize something yeah (laughs) i remember that yeah good god um for what it's worth also plugging directly into printers hasn't ever worked for me either i had a i had a pro 1000 printer which by the way if you were to it's a canon like a photo printer printer. if you ever move it though it never works the same again like if you ever like take it out of the box put it somewhere plug it in whatever and you need to move that printer is toast throw it away it'll never work Uh. like like i know this is true also because it was sent to me and I, something was wrong with it. And I'm like, do you want to send it back? Like, Canon, here, I need to send this back to you to, so you guys can, like, troubleshoot it. Something. And yeah. I'm like, no, don't bother. The second you put that in the mail or remove it from where it currently is, it becomes e-waste. So, like, <laughs> they, did, they did not even want it back. So, like, ah. <laughs> uh, Printing. Speaking of uh, companies that are making us super angry, last week we talked about uh, <laughs> we talked about Western. <laughs> we talked about Western Digital and Sandisk and how they're like total f- amounts of failures. Uh, but someone's taken it beyond that, right? I mean, their SSDs are failing. A lot of people are dealing with and struggling. And then uh, looks like somebody's actually filed the class action lawsuit. Since I published that story, which is linked in the description below, uh, Western Digital is being sued. Uh, two more have been filed. So now wow. Western Digital is under under assault from three class action lawsuits uh, based on the fact that they did not tell customers and to this day are still not informing customers that their SSD, portable SSD products that are listed under both WD and SanDisk brands are failing. Yeah, And it is baffling to me that to this point, they still have not publicly addressed it until late Friday, I believe. They actually responded to The Verge. I'm going to read you the quote because here's what The Verge asked them. Why are these drives still on sale? Will you offer free data recovery services to affected customers? And if so, when? Are you proactively warning customers? If not, why? 
what exactly is going wrong with these drives and how did this happen? These are all very reasonable questions. Here's here's WD's response. In response to recent reports of concerns about specific Western digital portable SSD products, we want to assure our valued customers that we're taking all measures necessary to address any product-related issues. We understand the significance of our products to customers and want to take these matters very seriously. We are conducting a comprehensive review to gain a thorough understanding of the issues. (laughs) Well, at least they said something, right? But they didn't. That is, in my opinion, almost worse than silence. Oh. (laughs) So after that, basically, The Verge asked three more times if they would answer any of the questions asked. And the person they asked deflected all three times, refused to answer any of them, probably because they're currently being sued, but they've had months to address these questions. Mm-hmm, they have right. never responded to us for what it's worth. We, we asked them two and a half months ago, what's going on? And we asked them again recently, crickets. At, at least the answer. verge gets the courtesy of a non-answer. Come yeah, on. exactly. Yeah, like PR presented. uh, It's so bad. So essentially what this has led to is The Verge, us, and multiple other publications are basically like, all right, just don't buy it. Don't buy anything WD right now. Well, I mean, this is is the free market working though, right? I mean, people are complaining. It's obviously an issue. It's not just a one-off or, you know, a small group. It's obviously happening to a lot of people. And uh, lawsuits, bad press. I mean, if anything, will force them to maybe at least try to rectify or I don't know, make better products in the future. We can hope that this will do it, but I don't think that that's the free market doing anything. So, I mean, my concern here is what we discussed last week, which is that, yeah, for people who are really keen on this and, you know, check Petapixel every day, they're going to see all these headlines coming through. But most people are just going to search for an amount of storage they want an SSD. And since they're fire sailing all these largely defective drives, a whole bunch of people are going to get stuck with them. Like it's going to take years for, you know, this reputation to work its way into like mainstream consciousness. I guess I'm more of an optimist because I think people are going to see Google reviews. They're going to, you know, a lot of people are at least savvy enough that they're going to check other people's opinions to some degree. I think that's fairly common now. And it's going to be hard not to see a whole bunch of this talk, you know, so maybe people will start buying more Crucial products or Kingston products or, you know, Seagate products, other brands of products. I'm, you know, there's no lack of alternatives. That actually is interesting that you bring up because... The alternatives are not well known. So to that end, um, maybe this will be good. We are publishing. We are in the final stages of it right now. Basically, we're filling in the pictures and getting it like formatted correctly. But um, Jeremy Gray, David Crew, and I have spent the last week actively punishing and testing a group of SSD products that we believe are alternatives to SanDisk. And we have five or six of them. Um, And we will publish our results. And uh, our recommendations this week, it might be published by the time we publish this podcast. And what we did in addition to just testing these is whenever possible, we found out what the actual flash unit was in each side of these inside each of these things. And if we were not told what it was, we would point out that the company doesn't want to reveal to us what is in here. And that affected our recommendation. We want you to be able to track the history of your flash memory so that you can make sure you know what you're getting. Because I don't want this to happen to anyone again. Losing data like this (laughs) is absolutely brutal. And it's not only a waste of money, but you lose time. You actually like you literally lose time. You can never get back. 
and it's it's it I, I I'm so angry about this and I'm I was <laughs> I was actually so fired up when I saw WD's response that I, I just like I needed to go like have a drink downstairs I was so upset. <laughs> so there Is you go. Is our third story going to make you angry too, Jaron? No. Great. This third, <laughs> this third story is actually, I want to hear from you guys because this is something that's directly related to you. And it's going to link with our main story today where we're going to talk about some more lens terms. It's basically part two of yeah. what do these mean? Um, but we're going to basically revisit one term we covered last time, lens breathing, because Kazuto-san, the CEO of Sigma, did say something in an interview with David Etchells, formerly the editor-in-chief and publisher of Imaging Resource, who now publishes his interviews with companies on Petapixel. He talked to Kazudo about lens breathing. And I'm going to read you his, this quote, and I want you guys to, to react to it because he's talking, I think, to you. <laughs> so, Kazuto-san says, So we know the professional cinematographers, and of course, focus breathing is very important for that, and also parfocal design but there is no perfect lens. So I know that professional photographers or cinematographers can deal with a lens with some breathing or that isn't perfectly parfocal. They know how to use it. But today, video reviewers oh. are so popular on YouTube that, <laughs> <Popular>. focus breathing, <laughs> that focus breathing has become very obvious and eye-catching. So people can easily point, out, point it out and say, hey, this lens breathes. In reality, though, you can use that lens without seeing obvious breathing in the videos that you make. And then David put a little blurb at the end of this where he was thinking about it some more. It's a little unfortunate that online video reviews of lenses have called so much attention to the issue when lens designers might be able to achieve better overall performance if they weren't forced to place so much emphasis on insignificant levels of focus breathing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all I got from that whole quote was that uh, Kazuto from Sigma says we're really popular. So that's great. That's <laughs> perfect. That's wonderful. I, that's, I appreciate his comments. So he really respects our, our work. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. Should... I mean, Jordan, you're, you're going to want to chime in on this, of course, right? Because this is your wheelhouse. But I mean, uh, <laughs> we're obligated to show all different characteristics of lenses as much as we can. Focus breathing, I will admit, is a fairly easy one to demonstrate. Uh, that's, I don't think that's a downside. I think that's great. I mean, that's something you can easily show people. Is this a factor or not? Uh, lens design is all about how far you want to push envelopes, how much money you're willing to put into that and thus charge the customer and what compromises you're willing to make, right? It's this constant sort of struggle of where do I give, where do I take to create a lens? And we've seen companies like Panasonic make lenses that have very minimal focus breathing because their their emphasis is for videography. And then you'll see lots of other companies say, well, focus breathing is not really a big deal because we really want to focus on sharpness or other, other lens designs. So... Uh, you know, he's right. At the same time, I think it's good and valid to show what the characteristics are. And then it's up to the consumer to decide if that's a major factor for them or not. Yeah, exactly. And I would say the same thing applies to like sun stars, for example. A sure. lot of people don't shoot towards the sun at F-16, but a lot of landscape photographers do. And they might want to know. And Chris. Mm -hmm. And they might want to know how do the sun stars perform on this. It's the exact same thing with focus breathing. Like, yes, you can absolutely work around it. And a lot of vintage, especially anamorphic lenses, breathe like crazy. Uh, you'll see it in very high budget films because it does make the design more complicated. You know, anamorphic elements make your lens bigger 
bigger and more complicated. And then correcting breathing on top of that makes it quite a bit harder. What's really interesting about Sigma is they're in a unique position where they're part of the L-Mount Alliance, where you've got lenses from like uh, Sigma, Panasonic, and now we're starting to see some other options there. And we've said for the longest time, Panasonic lenses are generally going to be a little bit larger. Um, but they're going to be breathing corrected. That is one of the big advantages of them. Um, but if you look at the Sigma lenses, we find generally they're a little bit sharper, especially at the corners, some of their primes, um, but they breathe like crazy. So they're really giving you both options. And I think specifically he's referring to like uh, Dave Etchell's, um, yeah, photographers don't care that much about breathing unless they're doing focus stacking. Um, but for cinematographers, I want to know if I have a locked off shot and want to pull focus on it, you know, are we going to have distracting breathing? That is something that bothers me. And I know a lot of cinematographers that care a lot about that. If you don't care about it, skip that part of the lens review, but we're making it for the people that that yeah. aspect of it is important to, you know, same as sun stars, same as loca honestly i'm, so, I'm calling out dave etchels because you know he's a let's camera do reviewer it. as well let's call it dave etchels because you know as a camera reviewer it's not necessarily our our role it's our role to educate it's not our role to tell you the viewer or listener what is significant to you and isn't significant to you that's completely yeah. up to you and what your work is and what you prefer and what you're okay with so I wouldn't call things like that insignificant and we should gloss over them because the fact is it all depends on what your work is. My job's not to tell you what what you should consider insignificant. So, you know, David, for some people it's very some people need breathing and some people don't want to breathe and they just want to hold their breath and that's fine. And the example I was thinking of is like the Sony 512, which is one of my favorite lenses released in the last five years. But if I brought that thing to a movie set and the camera is locked off and every time I shift my focus, it looks like a Hitchcock stretch. I'd be furious, man. So <laughs> that's why we do that. Yeah. So what you're saying I've gathered is you're unapologetic. Yes, we're going to oh, keep yeah, talking totally. about breathing. And if you don't care, that's cool. You can pass by that. I mean, should we mention like a skilled cinematographer can use camera movement to hide the effects of breathing? So this may not matter in your particular narrative film. Or should we just say, hey, this lens breathes a little bit and let you decide if that's important yeah, to you or not? You like, go. Jesus, no, yeah. Dave. <laughs> and you know what? It's it's up to it's up to the manufacturer to decide what they want to correct for or not. That's their that's their mandate. So you know, if they don't want to correct focus breathing, that's fine. But we'll point it out. And some people are going to care, and some people won't. So yeah, right. I am going to do a disclaimer every time we review a Sigma lens, though, one hundred percent. Like, and yeah. as Kazuto San would like to remind you, and we'll do the quote. Every focus breathing time. might not be that useful or important to you, and if there's camera movement, don't worry about it. And David would like to remind you that your opinions on what you need and don't need are insignificant. Okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna definitely owe both these people a personal apology the next time we see them in person. <laughs> I should like, mention Kazuto San is one of my favorite people in our entire industry. Yeah. Like, there's no one else who will give a candid interview like he will. I mean, I mean he, he just really turned the company. Yeah, exactly. And I I love that about him. I just happen to disagree with him, except for the popular part in this particular. Yes, we are very popular uh, yes. topic. And I guess we, <laughs> I mean, we can't. We're obviously expect... playing this up. We're obviously playing this up. We're really not hurt. There's no bad feelings. That's 
That's not the case at all. I, yeah. I'm going to buy him a drink anyway. <laughs> I've actually wanted to get drunk with Kazuto-san in the past. I've mentioned this to you guys off camera. Uh, yeah. So this is a great opportunity for me to take him out and, and give him endless uh, sake and say I'm sorry. Who doesn't want to get drunk with any Japanese business uh, executive uh, camera companies? They're tons of fun. You, I know. Tons of fun. <laughs> what, Jordan? I got nothing, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that is an excellent segue into uh, part two of our talk and lens terms. Yes. Uh, and one was actually brought up here. I just added it to the list because I think figured you might want to reference it. Well, he, some people might not know just what mentioned it. Yeah. What yeah. parfocal means, but I'm going to basically hand this over to you guys. You, you tell us what we're working with here, what, what, what each of these are, and then explain what they mean to you as far as reviewers go. Awesome. Yeah. Par- Hit me. Parfocal's. Parfocal is easy. Uh, you know, it largely Chris. refers to zoom lenses. So the idea being that if you focus a lens at a certain point in distance and then you zoom said lens, is it still in focus? And, and lenses which are said to be parfocal will retain very similar or the same focusing distance even after zoom movement, which can be really nice if you're doing cinema and you're doing like a zoom push through in your shot. Uh, you don't want the focus to change that much, if at all. In photography, you could argue it's really not that important, right? I mean, I'm going to zoom my lens. I'm going to refocus anyways. So would you agree, Jordan? It's largely a video term. Yeah, absolutely. That's where it's most important by far. And we should mention as well, like the tolerances for this have really shifted. You know, something that was rated a parfocal zoom, uh, that wasn't designed to be looked at in, you know, like we just dropped our 8K video. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The tolerances have to be so much tighter, which is why we're seeing the price of cinema zooms not drop, but actually increase, um, you know, where a lot of the other lenses are getting less and less expensive specialty video optics. Uh, because yeah, it's extremely difficult to correct for that. But if you want to do a snap zoom, then that's a great way to do it. The other thing I should mention is if you have a truly parfocal lens, as opposed to punching in and checking focus on a wide shot, you're actually dropping your image quality because you're zooming in on it. Um, digitally. If you do that optically, it's much more effective and your depth of field gets shallower as you increase your focal length. So it makes it fantastic for zoom in, check focus, zoom back out. I mean, that's how I was taught to focus in film school. I was going to bring this up. The rack focus is something that I did not realize was not common until I got out. Uh, I was in college and we were using like these Canon film like a tape i guess not film yep. like it is a tape tape and film same idea uh we were putting those in there and like we would rack focus every single time to make sure we were in and then we'd come back out and i did not know that that was not common until i left broadcasting and realized that oh none of my lenses do that they all are just immediately <laughs> out the second you move the zoom ring so you grabbed your uh, cheap sigma standard zoom what was that again the, uh, 24 the to 28 28 <laughs> to 70 thank you very much yeah that thing <laughs> does not four. rack focus no <laughs> I, I i wouldn't have noticed though because on my xt4 i believe is what i had my rebel uh it didn't shoot video so there was no reason they didn't have electronic anything so i wouldn't have been able to do that anyway it was it wouldn't have been, it wasn't until i got my 60d that i noticed yeah uh so there you go uh, yeah there you go uh, we're going to start next to are sort of related to uh, macro shooting. So the first one is minimum focusing distance, which is sometimes also minimum object difference mm-hmm. uh, distance. And then also, Chris, if you could explain the difference between this and working distance. Yeah, those two go hand in hand. So 
the minimum focusing distance is very simply how close can a lens focus physically. And it's always set as a measurement from the sensor plane. So if a lens had a minimum focusing distance of 10 inches, for example, hypothetically, that means that at its closest focusing distance, it, you're, you're basically 10 inches away from your subject in focus to the actual sensor plane itself. Now, if we take that same example and then we talk about working distance, working distance would then be what's the physical distance from that object to the front of the lens, right? So if I'm using a macro lens with a 10 inch minimum focusing distance, but the lens itself extends off the body plus the, the flange distance from the, the mount to the sensor, let's say that's six inches long, my working distance is only four inches. Like that object is four inches away from the front of the lens, right? There's no point having a minimum focusing distance if your lens is physically in your object, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, working distance is very important. I mean, the more working distance you can have, in a lot of cases, the better, because in macro, if you get too close to your subject, you can often cast a shadow, your lens can cast a shadow, the hood of the lens can cast a shadow, or you might be, in some cases, almost touching the object, uh, scaring away insects, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the more working distance, the better, and the good macro lenses tend to have pretty decent working distance. This is also why you'll often see at the store different macro lenses in different sorry, focal ranges. So you might have 50 or 60 millimeter macros and then 90 or 100 millimeter macros. And then these specialized like 180 millimeter macros. And generally speaking, the longer telephoto macros don't give you better magnification, which we're going to talk about. They simply give you a lot more working distance at the same magnification. So you have that extra leeway to work with insects or bugs or not block light. Yeah, poisonous spiders. That working distance is very important if that's your chosen sure. photography Spitting subject. Uh, it's worth pointing out too, a lot of the time people will say like, oh, well, I can just drop extension tubes on to get better macro. Um, and that does definitely increase your potential magnification. But there is a threshold on every lens because if you add too much too many extension tubes to the back of it, you're focusing now inside your lens, which again, yep. doesn't work. Um, and your working, working distance is constantly being yep. reduced. So again, yeah, shadows are going to become an issue. That's the drawback to using extension tubes on non-macro lenses. Speaking of which, <gasps> magnification macro. Chris. I'll do this one. Oh, Jordan well, and wants we should it. Talk, we should talk about that and we should talk about life-size reproduction. Can I do life-size reproduction first, Jordan, and then you do magnification macro? I mean, that's that's an erotic film, right? Is a life-size yeah. reproduction? Okay. Um, I think... I don't know if it is. <laughs> I, I don't either. <laughs> I mean, sure. you're the expert. You watch sure. a lot of erotic films. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So, <laughs> I feel so like we life size reproduction ratio. <laughs> life size reproduction ratio is uh, is a term generally in reference with full frame sensors. I'll explain that in a bit. But basically, a life size reproduction ratio. I always like to explain to my students like this: if you if you ripped your sensor out of your camera, your full frame sensor, you know, it's like roughly thirty six by twenty four millimeters, and you laid that out on the object that you're trying to photograph in macro microscopically a one-to-one -one life size reproduction ratio on a full frame camera would be uh basically the size of the sensor would cover the object that fills your whole picture 
Yeah. Okay, so you're getting a full frame sensor sized composition at one to one. Hopefully that makes sense. And then as you pull away from, I mean, if you did a two to one, it would be twice as close, you know, twice that you'd have, you'd have half the composition be that much closer. And if you had a one to four life size reproduction, you would only be getting, uh, you know, four times the size of your full frame sensor. That would be your composition. And kind of to visualize it, I always said, like, if you shot a visa card, one-to-one would roughly be the size of the visa symbol itself. And then one-to-four would be the entire visa card. So that's a way that we used MasterCard, to, to explain though? it. Yeah, Sorry? Thanks, thanks to Visa for sponsoring this episode. No, they did, they <laughs> yes. did not do that. Or MasterCard or, you know, Diners Club. Or, <laughs> or a diner's card. <laughs> I don't know Dude, what that I'm is. Old. I'm American old. Express. Discover? <laughs> America Express. Oh, yeah. That's very exclusionary, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now that we know what uh, what magnification is... Why don't you tell? Oh, sorry. We know what life size reproduction, reproduction is now. Jordan, tell us what magnification macro. Yeah, to. so it's basically exactly what Chris talked about, but it's a different way of showing it. So, you know, something that is it's just using a um, a ratio for it. So, a uh, one x um, magnification ratio means it's one to one, like Chris was just saying. So it's the same size on your sensor as it is in real life. A two x would be twice as magnified as it is uh, if it were placed on it. And um, like a 0.25 reproduction would be the same as a one to four. It's just another way of saying it. Generally, I think we try to stick to, you know, a one to blank ratio is usually how we mention it in video, but both are accepted and there's nothing standardized between the two. So you'll see both. Yeah, I think I often see the the 2x one as referencing like what a company will call their lens as opposed to a two to one. Right. They don't say that in the, the, the product name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. You guys are teaching me things. I actually did not know a lot of this because I don't, sh- I never really shot macro. So it wasn't something I, I like I'd life size reproduction to. because you've got that physical analog, you know, to, to your object. Yeah. I, I'm not a numbers guy, right? Like I, <laughs> Why are you saying I don't like that? do the math so good. I can only go up to, I can only go up to 20 megapixel cameras because then I run out of fingers and toes. So I like having uh, that 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 ratio. It makes more sense to me, right? But if you want to do math and fractions and decimals, I mean, I can't long division so good no more, you know? So I don't know. Whatever works for you, right? Jordan likes magnification macro because he's, he's, he's a numbers guy. He's okay, got thank the, you, Chris. You, I would I would say head. that you successfully Dennis Hoppered that topic. Yeah, I was, I was, I was waiting for tangent. I, I was know, waiting man. for you to like peter off, but then it just never happened. I'm was, a fisherman. I need to feel oh things with my hands. Oh my god! You All right, but we, we I, I want to get through these. <laughs> the next <laughs> one is the difference between a stepping motor and a linear focusing motor, a linear drive. Oh. And linear drive is relatively new. I would say in the last within the last eight years, God, a time is very hard for me right now because of COVID. I lost three years, so I have to remind myself that it's whatever I think it is plus three. Um, <laughs> so it's it's it is like eight eight or ten years ago. Sony created the first one, right? Is, am I am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I remember when they announced the linear motors. Yeah, uh, it might be the yeah. 24 actually, like when everything turned around for them. Now they put uh, two of them in there. They do dual drive <laughs> linear motors. Yeah, um, for sure. So. You know, a stepping motor is like a, it's, it's a rotational motor. Yeah. It's, it's very much like a rotational ro- motor in a ring. Um, stepping motors are called that because they were basically adding multiple steps and stages along this ring with, with magnets. Um, and you could, you could very easily and precisely move and rotate something along these steps 
within the motor. And that's how stepping motor works. And then a linear drive motor very basically is, is a similar thing. But if you think about your ring shaped motor and you simply open it up into a line, into a straight line, hence the linear drive, you're now then pushing along a straight line as opposed to within a rotational ring. Um, but linear drives tend to be a little bit faster, a little bit more powerful. Both are quite quiet nowadays. And of course, if you add more linear drive motors, you can really accelerate the process because you can have lots of torque, push big heavy lens elements. This is very popular in ultra wide angles, but even more so like big telephotos with large elements. So yeah, I'm going to steal from Mark Weir's Sony presentation. He does this all the time. A great way to think about it is a screw. Um, you know, you're moving from one end to the other when you're threading it in. Um, but that's much slower than just using a hammer and whacking it in. That's a great way to uh, compare the two types of those. I should also point out linear motors are still quite expensive. So we're generally going to find them on more high-end optics and they take up more space. So when we look at a lot of like small pancakes, like that little Canon 24 or something like that, uh, we can expect that it's going to have a stepping motor to keep the cost and the size down. Uh, yeah. Generally, you're going to find those more on big lenses. And, you know, we mentioned Sony a lot because they brought this out, but we're now seeing linear lenses from uh, Fujifilm is updating a lot of their lenses to include Tamron. linear motors now. Yeah. Tamron, Sigma all have a linear motor uh, version as well right now. I think and Nikon as well. They're superior yeah. in terms of how fast and accurate they are, but they're larger and more expensive. So that's the trade off. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there was, there used to be a kind of, um, benefit for for either motor design but i'd say it's pretty minor now stepping motors were always seen as being very smooth um and scalable for speed so like a lot of videographers really liked it because it kind of had this smoother more natural push pull kind of look if you're wanting to go from something close up to something far away stepping motors were very smooth but honestly with linear drives now they have the same kind of scalability you can adjust speed i don't know if we really see that kind of advantage anymore uh, we used to talk about it quite a bit in our lens reviews. We don't really, I don't know, Jordan, what do you think? I mean, is Yeah, when, back when there were like ultrasonic rotational uh, motors were one of the most common types out there. Every yeah. manufacturer had their own name for them. Those were famous for video for having kind of like jerky steps. Um, so that's why the stepping motor was brought out. And I feel like really it's just cool. an evolution in lens design as we go from those ultrasonic motors to the stepping motors, now to the linear drives. Um, yeah, it's just the next progression in terms of making video focus pulls look good as long as your right. lens doesn't have focus breathing in which case it could look bad potentially i don't know i'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about it <laughs> all right last last one uh distortion barrel and pen cushion are the most uh common ones go ahead chris, chris. yeah I mean, you know, so distortion, I guess it, it's, it can get into pretty complicated places, but distortion is basically, you know, we're shooting something, let's just say like a flat rectangle. Uh, very basically, that's the image that we want to shoot. Like say it's a credit card, flat. for example, yeah. a Visa card. Yeah like a, yeah, like a Visa. Well, in this case, a MasterCard, right? So that you can get what? sponsorship from both companies. Um, you lost so me. You imagine this rectangular composition you're trying to shoot, and then that light comes through your lens. You want that rectangle to stay rectangular. You want the corners to line up. You want the edges to be straight. You want light poles to be you know, vertical lines, and you want sidewalks to be horizontal lines. But the fact of the matter is when all that light comes through the lens, some distortion could take place. And uh, what happens is you get curvature. You get curvature that 
is more prevalent on the outside of the frame than it is the center of the frame. So when we talk about barrel distortion, the idea would be that if you looked at your photo with full barrel distortion, you'd actually see the center of the frame coming towards you and everything on the edge is curving away and it would look like the profile of a rounded barrel. Pin cushion, on the other hand, is the opposite. Imagine taking a pin and pushing it into the center of your photo. The center would get pushed further away and all of the outsides would actually fall in towards the center, much like the look of pressing a pin cushion, uh, a pin into a pin cushion, which, by the way, was the first thing that I ever made in home economics class way back in like grade four. It was a pin cushion. It was pink. I got to put fabric uh, paint on it. It was a triangular shape. I used those pinking shears where you get the 90 degree angles. It was adorable. It worked great. So do you still have it? No, I don't. I I probably do, but I put it on your desk next week. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Oh, geez. So one of the uh, things I I often hear is that description of distortion, but then there's the other idea of distortion. When you get wider and wider, even if your edges are straight, the image is somewhat distorted from what you would expect where things on the edges become bigger than they are Mm -hmm. and things farther away appear smaller. Sure. What that, it, it, is it incorrect to call that distortion? I always refer to it as perspective distortion, especially when we talk about like camera movement and stuff, uh, because things at the edge of the frame are going to look like they're moving faster than things in the center uh, when you're working with wide angle lenses and video. But the same thing applies to photo too. Um, and a lot of the time we'll talk about a lens like uh, a great example would be the Canon 16 millimeter RF lens. Um, and people are like, oh, the distortion is incredible insane on this thing but that was actually like in through software a perfectly corrected lens but the perspective distortion at 16 is so strong and people aren't used to seeing cheap lenses with that wide a field of view and i think that's why they singled it out yeah Uh, perspective distortion takes a little bit of wrapping your head around and it's always going to be there it's why i don't like my picture taken with extra wide lenses because it makes me look extra fat especially when i'm on the the edges of the frame I, I, there's that's, one particular picture I'm thinking of, Jordan. I think you and I were both in that one, and I just did not like that picture. Very flattering. Very yeah, flattering. It's something you Terrible. can't really correct for very easily. Yeah. No. So I think it's important to point out that Jaron is, is first off, not fat. He's a beautiful man. And he's, correct. Uh, he, he used to have a mohawk when he was a soccer striker. I mean, he's he's athletic. <laughs> wow. The other thing I want to point out. This episode. <laughs> the other thing I want to point out. So distortion, this barrel and pincushion distortion was a really big deal back in 35 millimeter and early digital days, because if you don't correct for it, especially film, that's your photo, right? Like you're going to have curved trees, you're going to have curved edges, buildings are going to bow out or push in and, and you couldn't do much about it. So nowadays, what's kind of interesting is that lens manufacturers we're finding actually allow for a lot of distortion. Because as we mentioned earlier, when you're making a lens, any compromise that you can make in one area, you can then put those resources towards something else like sharpness or breathing correction or whatever. So a lot of manufacturers now are getting away with allowing fairly heavy amounts of barrel or pincushion distortion that they would not have normally or that they would have normally corrected for in the film days because your camera can digitally correct for this stuff very easily. Photoshop can digitally correct for it. And honestly, you'll basically never see it. So the fact is your lenses actually probably do have a lot of distortion, but you'll never really see it because it's corrected for you before you even look at your image. And uh, there are some programs, like I know in Capture One, there was an option to turn off all distortion corrections, and then you could actually see the true distortion of your lens. But 
in the grand scheme of things, although digital correction of distortion is not perfect, it's pretty damn close to perfect. And it's really let us have lenses now that have much higher resolution than we used to without being insanely expensive and lots of other nice benefits optically because the distortion is kind of a non-issue and can be corrected digitally now in the background. Yeah, I think this is one of those things we always say one of the biggest advantages of mirrorless cameras is the quality of the lenses that we're seeing. And so many people attribute that to the short flange back and big mounts that we have now. But I also think you have to think back to a DSLR. Those could still correct for distortion after you took the picture, but you're looking through an optical viewfinder. So if that lens had crazy distortion, it made it really hard to compose. And you're looking you know, at like a fisheye looking thing if there's a lot of barrel distortion. With mirrorless cameras, it's digital digital start to finish. So they can correct that image while you're looking through the electronic viewfinder. Uh, and I think that's another reason why we're seeing just incredibly sharp optics coming out for mirrorless cameras. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. Cool. All right. That, that is it. That is all that we were nice. going to talk about there. We're going to move on to what uh, Chris normally hijacks this, but I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. What? what have we Take been up it, to? Jaren. Uh, How dare wanna, you, sir? I want to point out that this is not a barcode. On my chest, this is a Leica lens, as you can oh. see. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, what a you shell! Like that? What a shell! Yeah. I I happened to buy this in Vetslar at the Leica <laughs> shop for well more than it was probably worth, but I like this shirt a lot. On the back, it's there's actually like a little pocket where you can stick a lens cap in here, so that I'm not shooting. What? Can, yeah, that's like great. A built, it's a built-in pocket. Anyway, this is Who what I brought. That to if the you shot. Who knew that if you shot hyperfocal at F-16 on, on Jaren's shirt, both his nipples would be in focus? It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty great. I probably would have laughed now if we you know. said nipples with nothing else. Just the word nipples is just funny No, and me. if you didn't wear that shirt, I'd have no idea like what aperture I do to get to reach both your nipples. Now okay. we know. It's F-16. All right. Thank you. I think I think that's also that trip is a very important one in our milestones because that's the first time like the three of us hung out a lot. Mm. I feel like like we were definitely running into each other in press events, but uh, we hung out a lot on that one. And no, we couldn't uh, escape knows? each other. There's like that, nothing there except the hotel. Yeah, that trip <laughs> that may be the trip. reason that we're here today. So uh, it's a good thing that Jaron has a shirt that's a. Uh, a testament. Jaren's Jaren's nipples brought us all together. Oh my god! That was not the point I was. That's trying definitely to make, not but, what he said. Uh, but that okay, would well. look great on a T-shirt. So let's get those. <laughs> <made>. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Chris. What Go did ahead, you? Uh, what have you been up to? And what did you bring to the show? What I've been up to for my show and tell. Look, it's fly rods, isn't it? First off, aren't you all amazed that I haven't showed fly rods yet for my show and tell? So yeah, you were excited. You brought a real one, rather. I did put a real. Yes. So. What I've been doing, I just finished, I build my own fly rods and I just built this latest eight foot four weight right here. And uh, this is a six weight that I built earlier and the eight weight here. So I finally completed my triumvirate for rods that I wanted to build for myself. They're all blanks from New Zealand. And I got to give a shout out. New Zealand makes fantastic fly rod blanks. The country, yes. So I've got two CTS blanks here and an epic blank, all graphite. And uh, they're great. And uh, yeah, there you go. So that's what I finished this week. I finished my triumvirate of fly rods. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan is making is the weirdest out. face. Like, Eight weight, six weight, four <laughs> weight covered for a lot of stuff. Okay. Thank you for bringing that. Jordan can't wait to get his hands on them. No, yes, he can. It's lovely. Um, <laughs> looks great. All right. Jordan, do you have anything you want to bring up what you've been doing? 
I do. So last week uh, I talked about my little camping trip. And uh, one thing I got into doing is my kid and I would go out and I was uh, swimming laps in the swimming area there. And uh, I actually really enjoyed it. It's something that I haven't done in a very long time. So when I got back to Calgary, I got a um, a pass for the YMCA here and I'm starting to do like lane swims um, in an attempt to get rid of this fat sack of crap body that I'm currently hauling around here. Um, and it's been great. Um, but I just wanted to tell, I believe in like talking through trauma. I think that's a good way to do it. So I'm going to tell you a quick story from, uh, last week. So I bring the kids to the pool and then my wife and I trade off. So it's like, she hangs out with the kids. I can go swim. I hang out with the kids. She can go swim. Um, but because of that, I'm trying to go pretty quick. So I was just doing like as many lanes as I could, as fast as I can absolutely destroyed myself. And I see a gentleman waiting at the end, uh, when I'm done and I'm like, Oh, I'm just getting out. Don't worry. I'm going to free this up for you. So I go to lift myself out of the pool and I have destroyed my arms and I fly back <laughs> into the pool right in front of him. Try again. This time I make a sound like <laughs> <laughs> no good. Fall back into the pool <laughs> again. The guy's looking. I, I, I think he's like, do I help him? Like what is, what's my move here? <laughs> Try a third time. And this time I do actually make it on, but it's by like, kind of flopping myself like a fish on the bottom of a boat. You know, this look, Chris, and like rolling oh, yeah. sideways across the deck. And I'm well, making I the same face. Well, I always catch my fish in a net. Gasping so for air that a fish come with does. a net to pull you out. Right. Okay. So you're more. <laughs> that would have been nice. Yeah. You're more, uh, you're nicer to the animals than I am to myself. <laughs> um, so anyways, it was among the most humiliating things I've experienced oh. in my entire life. And uh, I'm working through it right now. And then afterwards, my wife is like, if you swim like two lanes over, there's actually a ladder. A ladder? <laughs> you need the ladder. I've never been so broken. I couldn't get myself out of the pool. So it, it hadn't been a necessity until now. But I'm going to be like one of the, you know, elder swim people who uses the ladder to get out of the pool now as I continue to work on this, uh, this body. That's hey, what I got. For it'll this get, week. it'll get better. I'm proud of you. You're doing Thank great. you. I um honestly like I used to swim competitively. Like I love swimming and mm. I swam in when I, when I got out of college and I moved to San Francisco, I started doing a morning swim class with my friend Matt and uh, I hated it because we needed, I needed to go to work at 8am. And so therefore we needed to be starting swimming at like 545, which means I needed to be awake at like five and I hate, hate being up that early. <laughs> um, and yeah, I would miss swimming though. And I lost a ton of weight while doing it. I would love to do that here, but it's all of our YMCA's are closed in Portland. I just uh -huh. looking right now, and I I think I recall looking for a, a pool I could swim. And I wish I could go swim with you, Jordan, because like swimming with somebody else makes you actually go swim. It makes you yeah, actually you should like, go early. do it. Yeah, Jordan, you, you should get up my at five accountability and go. buddy. Yeah, your account you it's, it's your accountability buddy. <laughs> if you go at five o'clock, nobody's going to see you while we're sitting out of the uh, pool. This is my well, way well, of asking, Chris, will you be my swimming buddy? So here's the thing. <laughs> so, and, and, and Jordan and I, we, we no. have this a lot. So I'm not a big swimming guy. Like, I can swim. I, oh, I like the water. Right. You choose not like, to get in. I don't like going to the pool. I, I like the ocean. I like uh, That's false, because we went in the ocean without you because you decided you wanted to fish for nothing. That's right. In well, Costa that's Rica, okay, Jaren was my buddy. Yeah. I would, I would choose fishing over a lot of other things, but... Um, yeah, I'm not a big pool guy. I don't like chlorinated water. I just don't like it. I'm not a big fan. So 
uh Jar like well both of you all the all the jars jars love to swim <laughs> jordan loves getting in the pool he loves like he, Love the water. he can't get him out of it yeah so that's your joy I'm well he can't get himself fan. out of it either apparently <laughs> oh oh i was so wow. happy to be in the water that my body refused to let me escape it ouch this is a, this is a much longer segue than i was anticipating but i love talking about swimming so i'm, I'm allowing it but it's uh we, we should probably move on because we've got a lot here that i want to we need to talk about because a lot of people have asked you guys some questions and we need All to right. get to them tech so, support time tech support time before we get to the regular general comment section we are talking about things that people want to know about their cameras or associated products that chris and jordan may have expertise in so here we go first question is a written one from youtube it's from sean han rahan and he says hey guys long time watcher first time commenter great episode as always this was in response to our last podcast so thank you Yay. i was having an undoubtedly thrilling i have an undoubtedly thrilling question for jordan about codecs and compression they're all I have, thrilling <laughs> i have a gh6 oh. and i was wondering taking file size and things like that out of the equation and just in terms of image quality if you're choosing between two 10-bit formats what are the pros and cons of choosing 5.7k 4.20 versus 4k 422 I understand the difference on paper, obviously, okay, according to the numbers, the resolution is going to be better on the 5.7 and the color will be better on the 422. But in real world terms, do you miss out on anything really worthwhile by having that zero at the end of that instead of a two? And are either of these have any impact on noise? So yeah. I'm not going to answer this because I'm not a learned guy and I'm not so smart. <laughs> and so I'm just going to fall asleep and you guys wake me up when Jordan's done. Okay. Uh, so... Essentially, you're right. Yes. Yeah. So it's uh, the 422 is more color information. The higher resolution is giving you more detail in it. But one thing I do definitely want to mention is back in the day where most of our cameras were recording 8-bit uh, with a lot less color information, the difference between a 420 signal where it's just use, imagine you have like a grid of color information. It's just using the top, not the bottom layer of color information to determine what color is there. That's the difference between those two. Um, so when you had that, a lot of the time you'd get awful like banding, smearing color. Uh, these cameras were notorious for that. And a great way to get around it was a 422 where it recorded twice as much color information meant that happened less often. Now that we've moved to 10 bit, we have so much more, you know, four times the color there. Um, I find it's not as noticeable. However, if you are shooting something with like a clear blue sky or, you know, a wall like the one behind me where we have very fine gradients coming off of it, you can still with a 10 bit 420 camera encounter those banding issues um, where a 10 bit 422, I almost never see them. So that is exactly the difference there. For most things, I'm very comfortable shooting on all the Panasonics, their high res modes are 420. And we very rarely see something in the edit. Uh, another thing to bear in mind is if you're going to be publishing this, then you might not see banding on your video, but if you slap it up on YouTube or like especially Facebook video or something like that, it's going to introduce that banding anyways, because they've compressed the hell out of it. Um, so yeah, I do find a lot of the time it's worth shooting the high res. I shoot high res on the Panasonic cameras all the time, but if you're worried about your background or especially if you want to pull a key, like if you're doing green screen work, then absolutely shoot lower resolution in the best possible color space and you'll get a better pull from it. I find that also this matters most if you're shooting in log as opposed Absolutely. to shooting with a built-in camera profile. You'll notice it even less. Uh, yeah. But if you're grading, 
you, you want as much of that as possible usually. But it's information I did not know about the 10-bit versus the 8-bit 420. I knew that I never wanted to shoot an 8-bit 420 in oh, log ever, yeah. ever. <laughs> but would you shoot in log in 10-bit 420? Yeah, we do quite a bit off uh, all the time. Again, not on like a clear blue sky kind of day. But uh, yeah, if you see high-res footage from us, because we do shoot open gate or um, the high-res on the panties a lot, that is uh, 420, and it looks lovely. In fact, right. you should check out our latest video where we shot a whole bunch of 8K. It's a great yeah. comparison. Yeah. All in 422, though, so irrelevant. Yes. But watch that video because it's good. <laughs> you know, All Jordan, right. I, just watched, I just watched Oppenheimer. Fascinating story. Fascinating, man. He's got nothing on you when it comes to video codex. That was well explained. Good job, man. All right. Next one is uh, from SpeakPipe. This is from Carrie West. Let's listen to it. Hey, fellas, I have a small photography YouTube channel called Carrie West, where I pretend to know what I'm doing. And I'm curious about HDR photos. And by that, I mean, true 10 bit with the increased luminance values. I'm pretty sure you guys are the only ones who made a video about this when the feature first came to Adobe Camera Raw. And I've really wanted to shoot and upload HDR videos. But I don't really have a way of including my HDR photos because Premiere doesn't support JPEG XL or AVIF files yet. So do you know of any way to actually include an HDR photo in a Premiere timeline without screen recording ACR? Or what about DaVinci? Thank you. This is a really difficult one. Um, what yeah. I wound up doing in order to properly display stuff is actually regrade it within the editing software um, and then exporting it as an HDR video file. Uh, that's what we wound up doing in the DPR episode where we talked about that quite a bit. And it sucks and is annoying and it has to be fixed at some point. And there's yeah. so much potential with HDR photography. If you look at it, it looks amazing. I think it's why so many people are like, oh, the photos from my phone look better because it's displaying in actual HDR because it was shot with the camera. It knows how to play it back. Um, it looks wonderful. And especially like, I would love to see a gallery of like landscape work on beautiful HDR 8K displays because that's a level of brightness you can't get on a print. It can give you a very unique look. Um, so I'd love to see more of that. I mean, that doesn't necessarily answer your question, um, but the best solution that I've found right now for Final Cut, DaVinci, and um, Premiere is, yeah, export a low contrast version of your photo and actually regrade it into an HDR uh, 2020 color space within the editing software. And then it'll play back and it'll look nice, but it's a lot of work and it should be simpler. And this is an area where I think the camera manufacturers and software developers have really let us down. All right. Next one is from Joel Mark. This is a quick one that probably uh, Chris might answer. Probably a long answer, though. Working with a number of camera systems, what do you do to set them up for use during your reviews? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, where to start? Uh, our goal is generally to show the camera at its sort of core default values. You know, a lot of people are going to be shooting jpegs or film simulation modes and they, and they want to see that kind of result so um i will typically shoot automatic white balance and i, I also want to preface this with at, at dp review when we shot for dp review we had kind of different restrictions on on how they wanted they wanted it very much like generalized by the book uh to test certain features and with petapixel we have a bit more leeway to be more creative which i think is better because that's how a lot of people are going to shoot anyways but, you know, uh, automatic white balance, I, I try to shoot auto white balance because, again, I want people to see, well, how is this camera going to behave? We've talked about how 
manufacturers will sometimes randomly change automatic white balance profiles from model to model and you want to see those changes. Um, exposure wise, we've always endeavored to shoot a range of ISOs so that you can see different examples. Uh, lens test, we would always try to shoot at the lowest ISO possible so that there's no uh, image quality loss given from the camera or, or mitigate that as much as possible. Uh, we always try to have lens corrections on. So whatever the camera supports for default distortion corrections, uh, you know, lens compensations, uh, vignetting compensations, we try to keep those on because that is how you will generally by default see the images. Uh, as, for, as for then how I like to set them up, a big part of it, the challenge of going from every week, a new camera system is just getting back into the menu. I mean, raw plus JPEG, I always want to shoot. So I have both to show. Uh, you got to remember a lot of pre-production cameras, we can't actually process the raws yet. So we always want to make sure we've got both file types. Um, we, uh, I always try to set things to back button focus personally. I like that myself. We absolutely want to test out the subject detection mode. So 90% of the time I'm using tracking autofocus, whatever the camera's tracking autofocus is, because these are things I want to evaluate, right? I mean, I know how zone focus is going to work on most cameras. I know how wide area is going to work. I want to see if the tracking is sticky. I want to see if the subject detection modes work. Um, I often shoot aperture priority, sometimes manual, but usually aperture priority. And that's actually quite interesting because I, I find that from model to model, there are quite a big difference in how that camera automatically exposes. And sometimes it throws you off. You're like, why are my photos looking so dark compared to normal or so bright compared to normal? And that's often because of changes with that. And I want to see that with automatic exposure. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Does that make sense? Anything else you guys want to know? I, I think we should definitely touch on uh, when a major new feature is introduced, uh, like when Sony brought out real-time tracking. We're fortunate in that we usually have the opportunity to talk to the engineers and say like, okay, what is the best way to set this up? And then we can use that information going forward. But I want to mention um, back in the day when Sony had the worst menus and the absolute worst <laughs> default settings, there was a period every press trip where people for a half an hour would get the camera and they were like, okay, go back to your rooms, set your camera up because the <laughs> default settings made absolutely no sense for people actually taking pictures. Remember that, Jerry? Yeah, I feel like they actually added a feature into these cameras specifically to address this, that you can now save your settings to an SD card and then yes. pop them in and load them in. I remember when they added that, I'm like, nobody needs yeah. this except us. Like yeah. <laughs> this is not this is not a commonly needed feature, but you clearly got tired of having to send us back to our room so that we could sit there and chimp for thirty <laughs> minutes trying to figure out what settings we forgot to change. And they were yes, I agree, always the worst. I hated it. It doing gets that. better. It's it gets better. It's gotten better. But yeah, there, a big part of a new camera is menu navigation, finding all the settings, and there are times where not only to familiarize yourself with with new features, you know, maybe a new multi-shot mode or something, but also, yeah, there's been times where we're just missing one menu thing that we forgot to set or change and it skews the results of all your testing and that can really suck. So yeah. Yeah. quite deep menu diving. Um, and then trying to shoot with an emphasis on, on showing as much as possible from the camera, how it would by default work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question here is from Joseph. Bonifacio or Bonifacio, if we're going to, you know, say it like Italians would. Hello. I recently broke my right shoulder, which means um, I won't be able to take photos, right, with most cameras because the ergonomics, especially for uh, the more 
flagship modern mirrorless camera, they're built with right-handed ergonomics in mind. So I was wondering for someone with either disability or, uh, you know, no use of their right hand or arm, um, what alternatives or options exist for someone to take photos um, using their left hand or actually just not using the right hand uh, if that's not an option? Um, I'm really interested in seeing the answer because I didn't really think about it until this injury. So thank you for uh, answering this in tech support. That is a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, the main challenge I would say right off the bat is finding a way to grip the camera without you having to use your right hand. So there are, for lack of a better term, like pistol grips and small grips that go into the tripod socket. And some of those, depending on the camera, which are kind of made for vlogging, will give you wireless capabilities to zoom your lens or to, uh, you know, st uh, start and stop recording, take photos. But it's generally with a vlogging videography kind of uh, uh, emphasis, you know, with power zooms and stuff like that. But that could be a way to get past some of those issues. Invest in power zooms. Then you can use a, a rocker to zoom. You can use one hand more so to at least trigger photos or start and stop recording. Um but yeah, it's, I don't know. There's the cameras aren't really made to be used. And we've heard this a lot of times for people who have injuries. It can be very difficult. Yeah. I, I remember a while back, we were talking to the Northrop's who were working on a solution for someone who was in a wheelchair and could only use their left hand uh, to be able to trigger the camera. Uh, and yeah, there's not a lot of manufacturer solutions out there. It's funny. This is actually something I heard as a reasoning for making more box style cameras. Uh, we saw some of those in the cine side and then people could build either rig for it. I know the um, Sigma FP series that was mentioned as, I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but as a possible use case where you could have have like a left-handed grip on it because it was just a box with a sensor in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, so it could be, I would like to see more development on that side, but yeah, as, as there's really no first party solutions for this, you are rigging something up for your specific use case and yeah, it yeah. sucks. It's a real accessibility problem. Um, I know Sony is working to, you know, do like voice control and things for accessibility on their cameras. I'd love to see more in terms of ergonomic accessibility improvements, but uh, no one's really helping people out right now. Now, there are also wired solutions, you know, like a, a lot of companies have multi-ports, USB ports that have multiple functions. And so there are wired solutions where you could plug a wired cable in, it would give you some controls on a remote. You know, we often use it for macro and stuff, and some of them are getting fairly sophisticated, but uh, there are probably third-party stuff too might be made to address these things where you can trigger camera options through a remote pad as opposed to uh, buttons on the camera itself. And then you can maybe attach that to, uh, to again, a, a supplementary grip. I think the best position is probably the bottom of the camera because there's nowhere else to really attach it. Or if you're going to use a tripod, for example, um, attach it to that. But yeah, it's something you're going to have to rig up yourself. As Jordan says, there's not a lot of support from manufacturers directly to assist with that kind of stuff. It just occurred to me as well, smartphones work really well for both hands and most camera manufacturers have an app that'll give you camera control. They yeah. might be an absolute pain to set up, you know, the tethering and stuff like that. But once it's up, uh, that might be a really great way um, for you to uh, control the camera from your left hand. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, we're going to move on to the last two comments. These are technically in the never read the comments, which we never read we the comments. Always read the comments. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if anyone wants to know where that came from, there was a Twitter handle years ago that was 
never read the comments. And every day they would post at least two different reasons why you should never read the comments. And that's, that's where in my mind this, this comes from. But you know, anyone who reads that always reads the comments. So it's always been kind of ironic at any rate, we've got two here worth mentioning from, uh, NME Creedy. I noticed, I note Jordan has switched from the trusty GH six to the S five. What is the main reason for doing this? It's a full frame shell. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, no, I'm, a bunch of my favorite lenses are on micro four thirds. That's a big part of why I've used them, the 10 to 25, 25 to 50. But honestly, it is, uh, it's twofold. The better low light performance that we do see on full frame cameras. And most importantly, I have been using the face detect autofocus on the S5 2 S5 2X quite a bit, especially for like walk and talks. Uh, just lets me, instead of trying to maintain the same distance between Chris and I, we can be a little bit looser when I'm using that. Uh, it works great. And, you know, I still manually focus all the time, especially when we have like a wide shot. Um, you know, and I want to make sure that depth of field's covering him, not have the autofocus wander off. But in some situations, it's worked great. So I'm really looking forward to a micro four thirds body with phase detect autofocus from Panasonic. So I can F- get back fingers to fingers crossed. We get we actually get that right. <laughs> yeah, because uh, that is uh, then I can get back to using my two favorite lenses in the whole wide world. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I'm hoping <laughs> GH6S um, where we. Even if they just want to throw phase detect autofocus in it, the rest of that camera is fantastic. I would be very much into that. All right. Final question from Emmanuel Alvarez. Thanks for a great podcast. I really enjoy listening You're to welcome. it while editing photos every week. You are welcome, <laughs> Emmanuel. One topic that we would be interesting to hear a little discussion about is the Canon RF lens ecosystem. Today, there's only either very heavy and expensive F12 L glass or extremely plastic entry level F18 glass. Where is the mid-selection of lenses like 24, 28, 35, Chris's favorite, 50, 85 millimeter F1.4 uh, primes? At the same time, Sony is rolling out a lot of great options in this category. Is Canon about to give walkover to Sony? Are they? I, I, I've never heard that phrase before, but I'm assuming he means just to cede to Sony. Or are they up to yeah. something? Reading in different forums, a lot of Canon shooters seem to be frustrated about this. I had no idea they were frustrated about this. That was, <laughs> that was sarcasm. So what's up with Canon? Is the prosumer lens options to be considered as part of modern oh. camera history? I don't know. Emmanuel, means, but... don't get us started. Oh, dude. I'm going to forge your note directly to Drew McCallum at Canon. Um, yeah, it's it's... It is just the way it is. We've complained about this endlessly, uh, you know, especially with them canceling third-party lens support and seeming to be holding quite rigidly to that. Uh, to that. Yeah, I actually, I'm going to bring up a quote here after you're done talking oh. to, to, to specifically <laughs> reference what they say to folks who say this, but keep going. Yeah. So basically, yeah, you, you are frustrated. We're frustrated. Everybody's frustrated, rightfully so. Uh, you know, we're hoping that Canon's going to start flushing out their affordable midline series of lenses. They absolutely need more primes, not just not just fast ones, but, you know, a lot of nice entry level ones as well. Uh, you know, we're seeing that, but it's pretty slow. They do have an amazing professional RF lens lineup. No doubt about that. But uh, yeah, and Sony is obviously taking it away with not only third party lens support, but also flushing out their own line of lenses quite robustly. So I don't know. I don't know what's up with Canon. I sure hope that they've got plans. I think they do. I mean, they, they're very good about listening to the consumers. We shouldn't make it sound like they're not. Canon? They obviously know a lot of people are frustrated, but are they, how long is it going to take? They I, said, 
and like I'll before you go, Jordan. Sorry, they, they've said in an interview in China recently, which was a trove of interesting information where they say nothing. In order to maximize the advantages of the EOSR system and better meet the needs of customers in different photography fields, Canon will continue to strive to continually enrich its lens product line in the future. That's a basically a yeah. WD response. There's nothing there. Yeah, that's that's your classic PR response. Yeah. That's what we always get. Yeah. But, but Jordan, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, Canon's not alone with this. This is what most camera manufacturers do when they bring a new lens mount out. They need to have their professional series of lenses. Then they want to have some entry-level options for people who are joining their system. And what gets left behind is that mid-range. That's generally something that gets filled out later. And But the big problem with Canon is that is usually filled out by, like Chris said, the third-party lens manufacturers. You know, that's Sigma and Tamron's niche is that $700 to $1,200 lens range. And uh, that is hugely neglected on the RF la- mount right now. And uh, I think it sucks. And I think they should work on that. But uh, and that, that, it's going to take that could be a long strategy. time. Maybe they've canceled third party because they know that they're struggling to get that mid-range out. And they want to at least have a mid-range out. I mean, that's what I think they're going to do. They're going to get these lenses out. They're going to give it some time until consumers buy those lenses. And then maybe they'll loosen up on the third party support once they have. Yeah, those but, lenses out but know, i mean but let's I, I say most manufacturers are dropping like five to six lenses a year it's gonna take a long time till they've got yeah. like a complete line of mid-range lenses uh i think it's it's it puts people in a really rough place and the rf mount sure. is not that new you know we're still talking yeah. about it like the r just came out but we're ge- yeah. we're you know, generations into this and yeah still not a but lot they of good don't want everybody options. to buy they want everybody to buy Sigma art lenses, you know, uh, 35 1.4s and 85 1.4s and stuff before they actually have any sort of option for that, right? But I, I think I consumer confidence, you mention a Canon camera, you know, you look at reviews online and the lack of RF lenses is constantly brought up. I mean, we can't, I can't talk about a Canon camera. Like I just dropped the R5C, which is mostly going to be used with like cinema lenses in the comments, a whole bunch of people like, yeah, but the RF lens bounce sucks. It's the first thing people think about when they hear Canon right now and they've got a real problem and they need to do something to address it. I think they do. Canon's main response to like, well, what about lenses for APS-C or whatever? They'll be like, well, we have a lovely assortment of L-mount glass that you can pick from. And it's just like, I'm not doing that, man. I'm, I'm not. Get a 500 yeah. R100 and drop an 85-1.2 on it. Absolutely. That's a common use case, Canon. <laughs> and we, I, we talked about it too. Like, why not move their EFM glass over and give people APS-C lens support? That would be, that seems to me like a no-brainer. Or, just, yeah, or remount something. any of their EF lenses that they haven't. Just get a first gen in there before they do an RF redo. Just yeah. do it. Just do a remount that's built in that you don't have to worry about getting in. Ad- anyway, like. I, Canon, I say this every time, and I, they just don't seem to agree with me. But like when I told you guys that I had a Canon Rebel and my first lens was a 28 to, to 70 Sigma, I, th- that is the only reason I bought a Canon. And then I would later buy Canon glass. It's not like I'm not going to buy Canon glass. But the fact that they're forcing me to buy Canon glass just feels overly restrictive. And I yep. agree with you all. They should not do this. They're the only company that does. The only le- camera manufacturer that doesn't let other people develop for the mount is Canon. And that is look what you started, Emmanuel. Look what you started, right? 
Well, I mean, other than that, this was a relatively cheerful conversation. But, you know, we kind of bookended it with some... It was a bummer sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. Uh, Thanks again to our sponsor, OM System. Make sure you go check out that deal on that lens that Jordan used with his fantastic hair. That's a great deal. And again, if you're listening to this... You could look as cool as me. (laughs) Yeah, you can look as cool as Jordan. And I, I beg you, please go watch this on YouTube, if not just for the 10 seconds to look at his hair at the beginning of this. So there you go. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Thanks. Bye.